as the musicians get a break and find their seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to two texts. Our primary text will come from Isaiah 8 this morning. But we are also going to read from Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. Stick your finger there and turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 8 as we continue to work through this section of Isaiah. We, we are continuing to look at Isaiah's Christmas children. We have looked at Sha'er Jashuv. We have looked at Emmanuel in this morning. Uh, we come to the most famous of all of Isaiah's Christmas children, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You are allowed to chuckle at that. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common letters, Belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared 
and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And now, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is the reading of the Lord. Let us go to him and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege to be your people, but especially because you have chosen to make yourself known to us. Being your children is not a call to walk and grope in the darkness not being aware of your purposes or your plans. But you have been pleased from the very beginning to reveal yourself, that we may know you and that we may follow you, trusting in you, looking to you to fulfill all of your promises. For the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. And so we thank you for this written word and for the figure of the child to which you call us to have the courage to wait for you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Look to the figure of the child. This is what we have been looking at from the book of Isaiah throughout Advent season this year. Because God desires his people to have hope and confidence in the midst of a world that is dying from sin. A world that is under the curse of God because of sin. A world that manifests that curse and that sin in so many ways as there are wars and rumors of war. There is the great disparity of wealth in which a few have much and the many have little. And I'm not talking about the the things that are often said in American politics. I'm talking about the kingdom of Judah in 735 B.C. Judah was part of that people of God that had originally included 12 tribes. But the northern 10 tribes had decided to rebel against God. They decided to rebel against God's king, God's covenant, God's worship. And so the northern ten tribes would not bow the knee to the king of Judah and so and the king of Jerusalem. And so they separated themselves from God's people. They separated themselves from the from God's promises. They separated themselves from those different manifestations of God among his people. And Judah now finds itself no longer part of 12 tribes, but now consisting of two. It is a small nation. And it is living under a dire, distressing condition of threat and distress. What we know is that historically, even as we we read about back in Isaiah chapter 7, is that the northern ten tribes have decided to team up with Syria. And, and they are starting to, to pull in other smaller nations in this region because they are tired of giving their money to Assyria. Assyria is the big bully on the block. They are the biggest and they are definitely the meanest. And they are flexing on the smaller nations all over the ancient Near East where they are swooping in and they are crushing these peoples and they steal for, from them and they kill the men. They enslave the, the women and children. They send many off into other lands and then breed out of existence those who remain there. This, this is not just, you know, things aren't going as well as they could. This, this truly is. A distressing situation. Israel and Syria are tired of living under 
this threat. And so they have uh, come together and are trying to pull other nations together to stand up against Assyria. They approached little Judah and said, we want you to join us. And King Ahaz has said no. But not because he's a good king. Not because he is resting in the covenant promises of God. Where God had promised Ahaz's father David, there will always be someone from your lineage sitting on the throne. And one day, that throne will be eternal. Now, Ahaz doesn't trust God. He doesn't say to himself, well, well, God has secured my little nation. He has secured my throne. And so, therefore, I will just trust in him. No, what he has decided to do is team up with Assyria. No, why would I team up with these other smaller little nations when I can team up with the big bully? Right? If you can't beat them. Yeah, we're Presbyterian, but you can speak in the circle. You can't beat them, join them. And what is... What is happening is God is now coming to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, and he's coming to the nation of Judah to let them know what their disbelief and what their, their rampant unrighteousness is going to bring upon themselves. Judah is, is a land in which the, the powerful are abusing their power to take advantage of the weak. And, and it's not just power dynamics that are, that are the problem there. When you had land in Judah, it was because that land had been given as an inheritance to your family, and it was given by God. And when the powerful were working schemes to take that land and to take that wealth away from those weaker families, what they were doing was stealing inheritance from God. They were acting in the exact same way as Assyria. Are we starting to get the context here? This is not just geopolitics. This is not just economics. This is a people who had been given these eternal promises that God has been securing. And they are thumbing their nose at Him. And they are trying to take everything they can for themselves because they are living for the here and the now. And the result is there is distress in their lives because of the nature of living in a cursed world. And there is distress in their lives because of the fruit of what their sin is creating for them. Now, this could be scary. I can understand why Ahaz would think, I, I need, to, need to do something here. I need to connect my throne and my people to someone that, that can protect us. 
But what's going to happen is, is that he's going to team up with Assyria. And Assyria is going to defeat that little coalition of little nations. But as Isaiah 8 here tells us, Assyria is not going to be satisfied with running over Israel and Syria. Because what's going to happen is Ahaz's partner is going to flex on him as well. And Assyria is going to sweep into Judah. And where Judah is refusing the still calm waters of God's covenant, his presence, his, his promises, they are entrusting themselves to a foreign king. And so that king is going to sweep over the land like the chaotic storm waters of the overflowing banks of a mighty river that seemingly cannot be stopped. Now the promise of God here in Isaiah 8 is once again the same promise that we saw in the beginning of 7 and the end of chapter 7. That even in the midst of of this judgment that's going to come, it is going to have limits. It is not going to be total. It is not going to com- to be complete. And so in the first child, in She'er Jeshuv, as you recall, the message is that a future deliverance is going to come. That a remnant, the name, the name She'er Jeshuv means a remnant will return. Yes, there's going to be a judgment, but it will not be final. It will not be utter. It will not be complete. It will be limited, and it will serve my purposes of making you feel even more humiliated and making you feel even more small. Why? Because Judah's problem is our problem. We like to make everything around us bigger than it actually is. And to do that, we have to minimize God in the process. What faith calls us to do is the exact opposite. It is to latch hold, as Isaiah 57 has told us that we read the first week, that God is the one who is eternal. He is exalted. He is high. He is lifted up. And yet, in His grace, He has chosen to dwell with the lowly. He has chosen to dwell with the humble. And he has chosen to do this in order to exalt the lowly, to exalt the humble. And like so much of what God is doing in the world as it comes to its its fullest expression in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what seems to be the way to do things for us is not the way that God chooses to accomplish his ends. He has chosen to create and to redeem in order to make everything new and eternal 
in the, in the new heavens and the new earth that God's people are waiting for. But the way that God has chosen to accomplish these grand, monumental plans and purposes is through what looks to be small and weak and seemingly insignificant. That God is going to constrain everything towards the new heavens and the new earth. From the very beginning of creation... And the fall of man into sin. He's going to do it through the promise of the figure of a child. Genesis 3.15. We, we, have, we have read that or at the end of Genesis 1. We read that God's purposes for man were to, is to be fruitful and to multiply. That, that our first parents were to, to have children and that these children, the, the indication is that they will be fruitful and multiply and those children will be fruit, fruitful and multiply and that there's going to be this multiplication of, of, of uh, people in the world that God has made. And, and yet, who are these people? These are people who are made in God's image. That God is reproducing his image in Adam and Eve, and he's going to reproduce his image through their children. And this is God's intended purpose from the very beginning. And even when Adam and Eve fall into sin, it doesn't take away God's purpose of having his image reproduced through his image. In fact, it is the, the image reproducing itself that God's people are told will ultimately come our hope and our Savior as the seed of the woman, the child of the woman will one day come. And he will be struck. He will be hit. He, he will be born into the context of sin itself and, and will experience that sin on, on his person. And yet, through the process of being struck, he will deliver a death-striking blow. The strike he receives to his heel pales in comparison to the head blow that he offers to the enemy. Do you see what's unfolding? God is going to reproduce his image through his image. And even after sin, the hope of the image in being renewed and entering into the fullness of God's original intention is going to come through a child that will be born from Eve, who will be struck, and yet in that process, will deliver a victory. And throughout redemptive history, we have been told to look to the figure of the child, where child after child that was being born into this world, there was to be that question asked, what child is this child? Is this the one in whom our hopes reside? And child after child, 
where God is using the figure of the child to constantly point us back to this first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, where the Savior himself that we are looking for comes in the image of God. We have seen this come, this promise extended through Sha'ir Jashuv. That the people of God are about to be struck, but it will not be their end because a remnant will return. What we have seen in the second child, in Emmanuel, is that though you are about to be struck, Take heart because Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. You're going to be struck. I've already told you there's a future deliverance coming. I've told you that a remnant will return. I've told you that this is not going to be permanent and it's not going to to be complete. And now what I'm letting you know is that you can trust me within this, not just because of what I promise is going to come, and not just because of the limitations of what's going to happen. I am going to be with you in the distress. The distress that is coming on to Judah will be experienced by the child named God with us. God going through the distress of his own judgment is what the child Emmanuel points us to. You're starting to see the theme here. This isn't God putting himself on this full display of his glory and his strength and his might in order to keep bad things from happening to us. This is God bringing us safely through these things, protecting us and limiting the effects of these things for us as he experiences his own judgment in order to bring us through these things so that a remnant will return. And now with the child three, we have one of the clearest Christmas passages that you can find in the Old Testament. Now I know that probably is what you thought as we read it. Oh, yeah, the third child, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Man, that screams Christmas. You know how many, like, stockings I've seen? How many Christmas ornaments? Now, it has to be a big ornament because there's a lot there. But do you realize that that's exactly what God is instructing Isaiah to do here? Here's the picture. What he has told Isaiah is, okay, I've given these promises. I, I told Ahaz to ask for a sign so that, so that he could know that I'm going to do what I say. Now, Ahaz, because he didn't want to walk by faith, he didn't ask God for a sign. So God gave him a sign anyway. He gives him the sign of Emmanuel, the child named God with us who will go through the distress and who will be the secure, the, 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 the security of God's people that the distress will not completely consume them. 
the, the child God with us is going, that's, that's the sign I'm giving you. Well, well, how do we know that God will be with us in the distress? How do we, how do we know that God's going to, to have this child? He says, well, I'll give you another sign. And I'll, the other sign, guess what this sign's going to be? It's going to be the figure of a child. So he's given the promise that he will protect, he will secure, he will deliver, he will bring back a remnant. That there will be new life after what feels like death. And he says, now, the way you know that that child who is representing that reality, the reason you, that you know that that's going to happen is I'm going to give you a child. And you're going to look to this child, and this child is going to point you to that next child. Does that ring a bell? When Isaiah himself tells us here in chapter 8, he says, These children that the Lord is giving me are signs to God's people. And they are signs that God is worthy of our courage and our trust, even in the midst of such dire circumstances that it feels like we're going to die and not make it through. And so he points us once again with the figure of a child. Now notice what happens with this child. This child is named after the prophetic message that God gives his people. All right. God comes to Isaiah and he says, here's, here's the sign. This sign is going to be an actual sign. I want you to make this huge placard. And, and the, the word here, here, we see tablet, right? We start thinking iPad. What it, what it would be is like a huge piece of wood. And he says, I want you to write down in big, clear uh, words. So clear handwriting. God would not be asking me to do this, right? It has to be readable because God wants everyone to see the message. This would be like our modern-day billboard on the side of the highway. And what is the message that God has for his people? His message is swift is the plunder, speedy is the prey. Now, literally, if you look, look in commentaries or the Hebrew lexicon, they'll tell you this first word is swift is the booty. We talked about this last Sunday, right? But because I don't trust certain people in this congregation to use the word booty, we're going to call it plunder. Because the idea here is exactly what you're thinking of when it comes to a pirate who would swoop in and through uh, 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 overwhelming force and violence, right, is stealing and taking. And, and what is happening here is God is saying that what's going to happen to Israel and to Syria is very quickly and easily they are going to be completely overwhelmed and they will no longer be a threat to you. Take comfort because the existence of those who are scaring you and are threatening you, they are about to disappear and it's going to happen fast and easy. 
Swift is the plunder and speedy is the prey. King Assyria is about to swoop in and swoop through and he's going to wreck it all and he's going to take it all. And we know historically that this happened in 722 B.C. Now, what happens here is that the people of God are being told beforehand what's about to happen. Take comfort. Here's here's what's going to happen. And I'm causing my promise. I'm causing it to be written down. Because I want you to see it ahead of time so that when it happens, you will look to me and you will know that you can trust my promises because my, my promise, my word has been inscripturated here for you and it's been preserved for you so that when it comes to pass, you know that I have fulfilled what I promised. God causing this promise to be written, to be inscripturated. What he writes on the billboard are the words, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, notice what God then does. As he tells Isaiah, okay, you've got that written down. It, it's, it's been uh, uh, legitimized by, by two witnesses so that, so that you know, we know that you wrote it down because God told you to write it down and we've got these independent witnesses that will, that will say to Uh, to that so that everyone knows this is from God and it's to be trusted. But then what God does is he tells Isaiah, you're going to have another child. That child is going to be born from your wife. And when that child is born, you're going to name that child Meher Shalal Hashbaz. The promise that I have given in in in, in verbal form and in inscripturated form. That message is now going to come in the form of a child. See what's happening here? God's spoken word becomes the inscripturated word which becomes the Word made flesh. God using the figure of the child as an anticipation of the fulfillment of His promises, but also using the figure of the child as as the icon, as the sign itself by which He's going to bring his promise to pass. Beloved, is this not what God has been doing from the beginning? Where God, even in the creation week at the very start, spoke. And when he spoke, it came into existence. And what came into existence was then written down for you and for me to read through the ages to know what God was doing and to understand what God was promising so that we would entrust ourselves to him and stop entrusting ourselves to ourselves. 
That we would stop entrusting ourselves to other people. That we would stop entrusting ourselves to the created realm itself. But that we would look to the Creator as the one who had all power and who had the intention of sharing that power for good. In speaking a reality into existence in order to invite it to participate in his eternal union and communion enjoyed with him within himself forever. In eternity past and in eternity future, the invitation that those made in the image of God would participate in the union and communion of God. And so creating in his image, speaking his words into, into reality by which what he has spoken will come to pass, where what he has spoken takes on concrete form so that we would know that he is the one who has spoken it and would give ourselves and trust ourselves to it when so many other things want us. To trust it. We will trust our own strength. We will trust like Ahaz. We'll trust our own plans. We will trust our own ingenuity. We will even trick ourselves into saying, well, since God has promised this, then we can, you know, we can bring this, we can bring that about if we do this over here. But if we're honest, every one of our plans and everything that we want to trust in always tends to be something that is visibly strong, something that has power and influence. We will trust money. We will trust generational wealth. We'll trust the government. If we can just get our candidate elected, then there will be nothing that will stand in the way of God's people enjoying the blessings of salvation and participating in his mission around the world. How often does a church that might be going through a period of being small, that might be going through a period where it doesn't have a big budget, going through a period where it can't do something like a, a brass Sunday, where, where it doesn't have the accoutrements, or maybe it, it is meeting in, in an old run-down factory where, where the floors are concrete and where the chairs have been, have, have been donated and, and where there is nothing about the space that says the eternal God is dwelling with his people here. Three weeks ago, I got to, to preach at a Reformed church plant in downtown Atlanta that has nothing, who has a small congregation that is made up primarily of the people who live in that section of downtown Atlanta, people who aren't the right color, people who don't have financial means people who don't have a voice and an influence in their community. A group that is 
so not respected that as I walked out the back door, as I was being shown different things, there was someone from the community smoking a joint on the steps of the church. What are they supposed to think? How, how can God do anything with us? How can God do anything through us? But what is God showing us over and over and over? He loves to put onto display His power and His splendor through what looks to be small and insignificant and weak and powerless and that has no voice. And He loves to direct us to the figure of a child because the child is completely dependent. And God is doing things in such a way that he wants people to say there is no explanation for what is happening here other than God. And when we try to go about things through the strength of our ingenuity or through our wealth or, or through the government or any other form of outward, you know, worldly power or, or influence, we are doing things in a way that are opposite to what God has been showing us from the beginning. And this is why we sang moments ago, what child is this? Why are you laying in such mean estate? Because through that little baby, born to those insignificant parents, coming from the little town of Bethlehem that was, uh, that was a nothing place, born in the midst of poverty and no power and no influence, is the figure of the child that has been anticipated since Genesis 3. That this is God himself come to dwell not only with the lowly, but as the lowly in order to constrain everything to the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved, what we are called to do is to look to God's promises that have been inscripturated for us. Not just in the sign, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, but in the entirety of the Old and New Testament scriptures which we possess. And what he has called us to do is to even look to the fulfillment of the inscripturated promise as it has been demonstrated to us in the figure of the child as God himself was born into this world and entered our distress in order to carry us through that distress, ultimately experiencing the fullness of our distress when our sins were placed on him on the cross in order that he would die and yet be raised from the dead, where from the very dead a remnant has returned of new life that has come through death, that has secured forevermore the eternal inheritance 
of what God has promised to us that he has given to us in the sign of his son. Beloved, this Christmas, what, what we are celebrating, what we are reflecting upon is the very, not just the, the, the niceties of the, of the season and, and not just there's a cute little baby in the manger. What we are celebrating is that God accomplishes his purposes through what looks to be small and weak that feels insignificant. How do you feel right now? How are you feeling this time of year? Many of you, we know, go through heightened levels of depression during the holiday season. And there are many different reasons. We know that some people go through this because they are reminded of how little money they have as they feel the pressure of wanting to get gifts for their children or gifts for a loved one, but not but being very well aware that they don't have the money to do so. Where others experience a, a bit of a pride because of the ability through money to, to impress someone with a gift. We know that people feel this way because of of remembering the the death of loved ones when you go to Christmas dinner and and their chair is empty. We know that that people going through these different things often experience heightened levels of shame during the season. But beloved, all of these different things, these these are the results of what it means to, to live in this world that is condemned, in this world that is that is under the the influence of sin and death. And what God has done for us is he has given us the sign of the child in order so that during this time of year when there is so much that can either push us down or so much that can make us exalted in our own pride, he is calling us to look away from ourselves, to look away from our condition and look to the figure of the child. The church is not experiencing the same level of influence in the culture. The church is not enjoying the same level of influence in politics. Is this a reason to freak out? Or has God given us the blessing of the sign of the, of the child to remind us that we don't entrust ourselves and we don't entrust God's purposes to princes? We entrust these things to God himself. And just like the suffering, death, and resurrection of his son would be the means by which sin and death would be overcome and new life that is eternal would come into existence, so also is God's looking for his church. If we want to be great for the kingdom of God, that we don't just look to the figure of the child, but as Jesus has told us, we are to become the child. 
And it is with the childlike faith of our little covenant children that when they are taught, just say, okay, well, if this is what God has said, this is what God has said. Beloved, that's what God is looking for us to do. In the midst of him securing his word through causing it to be written and causing it to be made flesh in his son. Beloved, you are called to become the child and to cling to what he has promised that you can read over and over and over and that you can celebrate even when we look at the cute little nativity scenes because that is God who is in the manger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give, you, you call us to be a people of hope. And you call us to have the courage to trust you in the midst of distress, in the midst of the ongoing struggles of this life where there is sin and death all around us, even as we as a congregation in the recent weeks have been reminded of these things, as there has been the, the loss of a covenant child in the womb. There has been the loss of an adult covenant child. There has been the loss of one about to graduate from high school. That, In every phase of life, Lord, we are not safe from sin apart from being found in Christ. And so, Lord, help us when we experience these things, not to lose hope and not to start entrusting our own plans and ingenuity and certainly not twisting Scripture to try to fit our preferences, but help us, Lord, to unwaveringly and unapologetically looking to you as our Heavenly Father like a child looks to its parents. Lord, there is so much going on that we do not know about but yet you have been pleased to let us know that whatever we are experiencing, it is under the power of your sovereignty. It will function according to the limits of your purposes. It cannot keep us from our inheritance, but it becomes the very means by which our smallness gives way to your immensity so that we will have the courage to follow you looking at the figure of the child as we anticipate the future deliverance that will bring our suffering to an end and introduce the full joy of a restored world that will only be because of what you accomplish. And Lord, we pray that you would press upon us this, this method by which you do things so that we would willingly humble ourselves in order to participate in your grand design. Not because of our strength, but because of yours. Bless us, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.